Welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspire. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, is my good buddy Dan. Dan, hey, how's it going? Going really well. It's been a great week and weekend here in North Dakota. We have had some decent temperatures, so our snow is mostly gone. We're able to actually go out and have a walk. So I am chipper as can be, man. Life is getting excellent. Better, so excellent. And what about on the uh, on maybe the movie front? Movie's been great as well. Went to Dungeons and Dragons last week. Really enjoyed that. Looking forward to getting to Renfield this week. So that's going to be spectacular. And then, of course, that was out from now. That was what I was referring to. But you know, all right, it's cool. I went to the Dungeons and Dragons movie as well. That was that was a lot of fun. It was. So what were you speaking about in movie terms? By I point? was speaking about of the, galaxy, the movie that perhaps? we were... Yes, I was speaking about the movie that we are going to be talking about today, actually. Fine. If you just want to get down to business, we can do that. So this week we're actually checking in with Guardians of the Galaxy. Coming back again for a second pass at it. Uh, they spend the start of the MCU's third phase doing that little bit of good, little bit of bad that they do. And end up nearly helping Star-Lord's dad destroy the universe in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Yes, there is. Uh, that's an interesting movie. And this is the first time I've seen it in quite a while. And I am look forward, looking forward to chatting with you about it. Because I think there's, I think there's a lot to unpack in, in that film. But before we do that, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this week in comics and Dan, I know we talked about this like a month or two ago, but Captain Marvel leads Earth's Mightiest Heroes in Avengers trailer. We have a 90-second trailer showing off the Jed McKay CF Villa relaunch of that famous Marvel team that is coming to comic book stores on May 17th. It looks amazing. Some of the uh, some of the graphics are some of the images in there from the first issue or first issues look look spectacular. And we find out that Captain Marvel is the one that's going to be leading the Avengers this go around. Yeah, that sounds the the captains do that sort of thing pretty regularly. We've got you know Captain America has led the team. T'Challa, of course, has led the team. Iron Man, really, in all sorts. You know when we were reading a few weeks ago was janet van dyne who took over so this sounds good the art looks spectacular jed mckay's writing so the story of course is going to be good uh, i think issue number two is currently in solicits so probably we're going to see the first issue in stores in a month or two and it'll still be probably mid-summer before it makes it to marvel unlimited but yeah looking looking forward to these i think they're going to be a lot of fun so if you watch the video, the trailer, it actually shows all the members of the team. Um, yep. It's it's not, uh, it is more along the lines of the kind of the classic Avengers. Uh, but we do have like uh, Vision and uh, Scarlet Witch 
and and some other characters, Black Panther and that. And in fact, uh, Jed McKay, in talking with Polygon, talked about uh, putting Captain Marvel as the head of the group, saying putting putting her in the big seat of the Avengers is a lot of logical possession progression. Excuse me for the character. To my mind, and applying the challenges of leading a team like the Avengers to a character with the sensibilities of a brash fighter pilot has been a lot of fun. And I, yeah. I, I think just the combination of McKay and the art that I'm seeing from this, uh, from from this trailer, I I'm really excited for when this gets available so I can take a look at it. This looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, when you look at the seven of them, you know, you've got Vision, you've got Iron Man, you've got Thor, Captain Marvel, Scarlet Witch, who, remember, is one of the most powerful people in the universe as well, and then you've got T'Challa and Falcon as well, or maybe they don't show it, so I'm not sure if he's still in the Captain America or if he's gone back to Falcon. His uniform looks much the same in a lot of ways, but they've both been sharing the Captain America for a while, so I'm not sure who has it right now, but... That's a team that you're going to have to have some pretty good villains for because, you know, any one of those could knock out most of your garden variety Marvel Marvel bad guys. So Right. It, it was interesting, you know, there was a lot of talk about who was going to be on the team and, and McKay himself said that, you know, he, he this still seems like it's a quite a big roster. And he, and he says, well, of course, maintaining a manageable roster size with too many characters, you're going to get into issues where some members aren't getting enough of the spotlight, that kind of thing. While I'd like to have Hawkeye or Ant-Man or the Wasp, sure, but I'd also want to focus down on a group that I could do each of them justice. So uh, this still seems like a lot a lot of uh, spotlight to share, but I, if anybody's going to be able to do it, I think, I think Jed McKay is probably going to be the one. It may seem like it's a bigger roster, because you're more used to the movies where I think five is kind of the classic Avengers number in the MCU. Seven is actually the classic number in the comics. Okay. So seven is sort of what they used to have as the, the limit. So usually if somebody left, someone else would come back in and we'd end up with seven. Uh, So occasionally they, for a while they went way over that, but normally that's been what they stay at. So it's a, it's a lot, but it's pretty normal. All right, new on Marvel Unlimited this week. There, there's a, uh, there is only one number one that's coming out this week that actually looks really interesting. We're talking about the Avengers in the first story. It is Avengers War Across Time, number one. Thor, Iron Man, Captain America, Giant Man, and the Wasp, the classic Avengers against the Hulk on the streets of New York. It's the beginning of a showdown with Kang the Conqueror that will span the centuries uh eisner hall of famer paul levitz makes his marvel debut teaming up with acclaimed artist alan davis so the cover on this definitely harkens back to some of those classic avengers uh looks of those characters uh very much so and uh looks very interesting well and and the people they've got on this levitz is a legend he wrote a lot of the, the old legions I loved as a kid and everything. He's been writing comics for decades. But he is a career DC guy and somebody who, in fact, is like a primary DC historian and the like. So this is kind of a, you know, 
a watershed moment, him coming in and, and writing a Marvel book. Really? The other thing, though, about this that's kind of cool is Alan Davis is one of my favorite artists of all time. So, yeah, this this week, if you happen to have a chance to uh, to open up Marvel Unlimited and take a look at that, I would highly recommend it. Haven't read it yet, so I can't actually say it's great, but at least the art should be pretty spectacular, and Levitz has a really good history of writing some entertaining stories as well. So this is, this is one that uh, that I'd recommend checking out. I certainly will be. So a couple number twos that I wanted to point out. Monica Rambeau, Photon number two. Definitely seems like that would be relevant to look into. Uh, we got a trailer in the last week for the new Marvels movie. Did you Have you had a chance to see that? That looks really, really interesting. Yep, I have. Yeah, it's going to be... Interesting is maybe the word. It definitely looks like they're playing into kind of a little bit of comedy and some, some you know, just chicanery on it because it's going to evidently be every time they use their powers, they randomly change places with one of the other Marvels is I think yes. what's happening. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how this goes. It's For now, though, um, I like all the characters. I think it'll be entertaining. We'll see what happens. I also have Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur number two as well. I think that's kind of interesting because there's now an animated series uh, on Disney Plus as well uh, that, that is coming out. So if you're a fan of the animated series, uh, this this is a, a book that you could jump into uh, if you if that didn't satiate your your desire for for Devil Dinosaur and Moon Girl. Yep. And Devil Dinosaur has actually been around since the 70s. He was created by Jack Kirby way back in the day. And the Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur books that have been coming out the last few years have been actually sort of sneaky successful for Marvel. They're not the sort of thing that necessarily does great in comic book stores, selling to old guys like me. But evidently on the secondary market in like bookstores and stuff, it's actually one of Marvel's better titles. So good to, good to see them leaning into that and bringing that character back. Dan, do you got a recommendation for us for this week? I do. I am so happy that this book is finally here. I've been waiting for this for quite a long time. The Great British Bump-Off number one came out this week. And it is a new series from Dark Horse. It's actually a mashup of sort of all things British. Because it takes essentially an Agatha Christie mystery and sets it into the baking tent of the Great British Bake Off. So if you're a fan of either or both of those things this would be something to check out. It's written by John Allison and drawn by Max Saren. They're the team that actually also did uh, Giant Days, which was a massively successful and and just really entertaining series from a few years ago. Won a bunch of Eisners, sold a ton of, of trade paperbacks. One of my favorite series of the last decade. So, yeah. This, this would, with an asterisk, get my my recommendation to check out if you're down at the comic store and want to try something new great british bump off is the place to go right that sounds good we'll have a link to that in the uh show notes so you can check that out on the uh, dark horse website and with that shall we move into the uh the main topic today guardians of the galaxy volume two absolutely all right this is your spoiler warning this is a movie from a few years ago, so this is definitely not something that, you know, we ran out to see it in theaters. But 
if you do not want to hear in-depth discussion talking about uh, characters and plot of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, please stop the recording right here. Go watch the film. It's actually a pretty good film. And then come back and join us and, and uh, enjoy the discussion at that point. And with that, let me jump in and talk about the film facts for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Tagline for the film is, This summer, the galaxy won't save itself. It was released May 5th, 2017. Coincidentally enough, exactly six years from that date, May 5th, 2023, is when Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is set to release. It has a runtime of 136 minutes. Box office take worldwide was $863 million, just over that. Domestically, it brought in $389 million on a budget of $200 million. It has an IMDb rating of 7.6 out of 10. It stars Chris Pratt, Zoe Sandana, Dave Batista, Michael Rooker, Pom Clementieff, Karen Gillan, Bradley Cooper, Vin Diesel, and Kurt Russell. It is directed by James Gunn. Screenplay, James Gunn, Dan Abbott, Andy Lamb. Those are your film facts for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which, incidentally enough, that's the name of it. They they uh, decided Guardians of the Galaxy by itself, too long a name, so they didn't want to go like real crazy with the subtitles for these. So that's why it's just Volume 2. That's why then the first one got Volume 1 added to it. And that's why it's volume three for the for the third one. So was Guardians of the Galaxy, the original movie, not called volume one when it came out? Originally when it came out, it was not, no. Isn't that interesting? All right, very cool. Look at me, learning stuff already, and we've only just begun. It's awesome. All right, so that's cool stuff, Dwayne. Are you ready for a recap on this movie? <laughs> Two minutes. You're going. You've got your work cut out for you on a. Forget that. This is a long movie. It is. This is you know two hours and fifteen minutes or whatever, and there's a lot going on in this. There are battles and the like, but there's a lot of feels and talking and people, kind of just sort of you know having character moments and stuff. So, yeah, just a preface. Two minutes is a lost cause, but. Here's what I've got for you. We actually start out on Earth back in 1980 with Meredith Quill, her spaceman, and a crazy plant before launching 34 years into the future for a credit sequence that involves a dancing baby Groot and a battle with a massive battery-thieving beast. The Guardians defeat that monster, receive Nebula as a reward from the, the golden sovereign aliens that they took the job for, and they leave then with a number of stolen batteries in Rocket's satchel. The Sovereign are not happy about this. They give chase, and they nearly destroy the Guardians, before the team is saved by the miraculous destruction of the entire opposing fleet by some random guy standing on an egg ship that just sort of blows up this, uh -huh. this massive, literal Duset Machina, right? Um, after this, their ship is horribly damaged, it crash lands on a planet called Bertalt, and the egg follows them down. When it lands, we meet Mantis and also Ego, 
who claims to be Peter Quill's father. Quill, Gamora, and Drax decide to leave with Ego to learn more about him, while Rocket, Groot, and Nebula stay behind to work on the ship. So, at this point, things cut over to a pleasure planet of some sort, where Yondu and his crew are hanging out on sort of leave, they're shunned by other Ravagers, and then they're hired by the Sovereign in a very awkward scene where they kind of come down from above to, uh, to talk with the commoners. And they're hired to hunt down the Guardians. Rocket takes on a small army of the Ravagers by himself on the planet once they catch up, uses all sort of tech and toys to pretty much thoroughly defeat everybody but Yondu. And this is an entertaining sequence. I really enjoy this. It's, yeah. it's fun. Ravagers start fighting among themselves. Nebula eventually ends up taking down Yondu, and this causes a rebellion among the Ravagers with someone named Taserface taking over. <laughs> much much to the entertainment of Rocket, right? Uh-huh. Rocket and Yondu eventually escape. They kill most of the crew in the process, and they then head off to join the rest of the team at Ego's planet. On Ego's world, all along here, and these have been cutting back and forth, but I decided to just put them in two things because it's too stinking confusing to go back and forth. Meanwhile, uh-huh. on Ego's world, the gang finds out that Ego is actually a celestial, which is kind of this galactic being in the Marvel Universe. And they get his backstory as this evolved sort of living planet. We learn more about Ego's penis and also his time with Peter's mother. None of this is particularly comfortable for uh, for Peter or the rest of us. But uh-huh. at this point, Ego and Peter sort of fight a little bit and then they bond together with uh, Peter being angry that he left his mom, but then being excited to find out that he's now got superpowers. He's a god. He's immortal. There's some good things happening for him, right? While this is all going on, Mantis has a secret that she's trying to tell them. Nebula arrives to attack Gamora, and the two sisters actually find a massive graveyard of skulls and bodies down inside the planet. Uh, after trying to wreck each other in a massive fight involving a spaceship and guns and all sorts of stuff. Ego then ends up monologuing his master plan to Peter, which he calls the Expansion. And this actually involves planting these weird plants of himself all over the galaxy and then absorbing all life in the universe and making everything Ego. He then admits that part of what he had to do was to kill Peter's mother because he was getting too attract or too attached to her That's and true. it was going to get in the way of the expansion. Peter does not like this very much, so he essentially tries to kill Ego. Rocket arrives, the team gets back together. They all go down and try to attack Ego's core, which is the only way they can destroy him and save him from doing all of this. The Sovereign Armada has been tracking the team. They then arrive, bent on recovering the batteries. Mantis temporarily pacifies Ego. Rocket sends Groot, little baby Groot, down into the core with this explosive, telling him to hit the right red button uh, and set an explosive to destroy the planet. And when Ego reawakens, he and Peter have a god fight. Groot sets the bomb, and Yondu gets Quill off the exploding planet by sacrificing himself. The movie closes with Yondu's funeral, where Peter realizes who his real dad was. Gamora and Nebula have a hug. And Stallone and his friends arrive to give Yondu a Ravager send-off. Yep, that is, that is, that's actually a pretty good recap of everything that happens in the movie. 
there is there is a lot that's going on throughout this film and and um yeah it is it's 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 pretty good like here, here's the first thing i'm going to say is i don't think i like this as much as the first film but this is still a pretty good film i think they're very different they are the, yes they are very the different. thing i will say about this is that it it very effectively builds off of the first film and creates something that has a lot more sort of going on as far as trying to play at your heartstrings and try to actually develop some some sort of themes on stuff than the first one yeah. did. The first one was just more fun. This one, I think, you really... This is where you really bond to these characters in a lot of ways, I think. You know? I I, I would agree with that. I would... I would there, there's definitely, I think, a message in here that you don't necessarily... There wasn't a big overarching, I think, message in that first film necessarily. This one, I think, had that message. We're going to... We're going to talk about it a little bit, but first let's start off with ego, the size of a planet. Kurt Russell is great in this film. He is uh, now, unlike the living ego, the living planet we saw in the comics last week, he is a celestial God with a small G he says uh, that just sort of up awoke in space and over millennia and millennia of years he became um you know this planet the the yeah, a being and then this planet and then like this being on this planet and um i i loved how they sort of like an onion just kept peeling back layer and layer and layer of this character until you kind of got that ultimate reveal of the expansion and what that was. I mean, you saw glimpses of things. You saw the plant at the beginning of the film, but you don't know what exactly that means or what, what, why is that important until you get, you know, three quarters of the way through the film. Yep. And he's another of those characters that just seems so relaxed and friendly and Kurt Russell wouldn't hurt anybody, so why would we worry about this character? It's gonna, it's gonna right. be fine, right? Um, and then, and then it's not fine at all. So I, I do. I think he, he did a nice job. They had good scenes together, and this is obviously another of those very over the top characters, but he played it a lot more. I mean, compared to like the Grandmaster that we get, you know, coming yeah. up. In, in yeah. a little while, he played he played his cosmic character relatively compared well Benicio de Toro and all these guys. He played his a little bit more down to earth than a lot of those guys. So his was more of kind of a a super powerful craziness that actually seemed pretty reasonable and normal until you realized he was going to kill everything. So. So the interesting thing about this is, so apparently when, after uh, the announcement of this second film, you know, Gunn had a specific idea that he wanted to look at the backstory of Peter Quill, his father, and actually Yondu, because he had written this whole big backstory for these characters for the first film just to better understand and better provide context for each of these characters 
to begin with. And and so yep. he knew where he wanted to go with this sequel. And and it's and it's actually really interesting because when he was writing the script for the movie, he proposed the idea of Ego the Living Planet being Star Lord's father. Marvel told him they didn't have rights to the character Ego. The rights actually belonged to 20th Century Fox because of his ties to the Fantastic Four and the Silver Surfer franchises. And since Gunn had no other characters in mind for Star-Lord's father, he had to ask Fox for the ability to use the character. Fortunately, Fox agreed to let Marvel use Ego in return for Fox gaining more creative freedom over Negasonic Teenage Warhead's set of superpowers for the Deadpool movie in 2016. So it's really something here because it is like you wouldn't think that there was all of this behind the scenes but this is all the sort of things that have to happen with with licensing and whatnot but i love the fact that he had written up this kind of big backstory for peter quill and yondu and all that and like even at the end of the first film yondu talks about meeting peter's dad and him being a jerk so, so yep. he even intimated to this at the end of the first film, and then we get to see it in the second film. Yeah, and that it's it's sad at a certain level that we're surprised or somehow give them props for the fact that they actually know what they're talking about in the first movie when they're planning on play, doing another one, right? right? Because so many times it does seem like they're just like, ah, this might work, Disjointed, and then yeah. they have to sort of retrofit some sort of a backstory on later when they decide they want to do another one. I do like the fact that Gunn almost always seems to have a plan, you know. And there's even parts of of 2 that make me a little sad because it it also seems obvious that he had a plan probably for 3 that more than likely got completely mixed up and messed up by the fact he had to wait another 3 years to do it and it was after the phase that it would have probably otherwise been in and everything. So who knows? One last thing, the revelation that ego put cancer in Meredith Quill's brain absolutely floored me. The first time I watched this film, it was such a shock. He talks about, I went to earth three times and I knew I couldn't go back for a fourth. So I, so he said he did this and it just, and it brings Peter out of kind of the, the, the expansion sort of malaise that he is in where he's seeing what the plan is and, and and basically blows, uh, you know, ego to bits there with his, with his little phaser guns. Um, but man, Oh, I was not expecting that. I just, ego's the worst. Yes. Yeah, and that really, I mean, that's the sort of that's the sort of thing though that when you want to take a character that's been pretty laid back and the like and just immediately put massive Lay red him. flags on everybody yeah. that this guy is is awful. It's okay uh-huh. to shoot him immediately, right? I think he uh-huh. he did a nice job and it was it was set up, it was really well acted just the way that he delivered it in almost this deadpan kind of way that he is obvious. He didn't really even kind of think twice about it or or whatever. Um, Just brilliant. So 
So, you know, we talk about ego. Let's talk about, I, I love my, one of my favorite lines in this movie. I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. Michael Rooker as Yondu is also brilliant in this film. The, the father son dynamic that you kind of saw in the first mm-hmm. film, I think gets taken to another very logical level and, and really helps kind of set up the whole guardians of the galaxy is all about family that we're going to talk about in a minute. You, yep. you really, you really see the contrast between ego and Yondu and, and, you know, you find out that Yondu, the reason he's exiled is because of the work that he was doing for ego, bringing kids to ego and all this sort of thing. And it was, you know, he brings up the fact about him, you know, suggesting that he was going to eat Peter. And, and he's like, no, I was trying to be funny. And he's like, well, it wasn't funny to me. You know, I just, it was, it was so, he is so good. And yes. like Gunn talks about like his smile near the end of the film is one of the, one of his favorite moments from the film. And, and like that funeral scene after you have that big climactic battle, and you see Yondu save Peter at the expense of himself. And then you get the funeral scene and the other Ravengers showing up and you hear Cat Stevens playing in the background. It's hard not to just get choked up. Oh, I, yeah. I was surprised by how invested I was in the characters at that point and how, how much yeah. I was just like, man, this is just kicking me in the teeth, you know? Uh-huh. So I think that ending was really well done. It was yeah. a brilliant send-off for a character. It was well-earned in that they set this up over two movies. The other thing is that quite literally, the weirdest, the most unexplained part of Yandu's character was why he kept protecting this guy who kept doing things that that caused him undermining trouble. him yeah you know he's he's supposed to be this this leader of this pirate band you know these guys that are just merciless and he just keeps letting this guy get by with things and and then so you know you kind of figure it out yourself that you know there's something going on with him and and peter but then when they actually get to the end and they tie it all together it just hits you like a ton of bricks and so Really well earned, really yeah. well earned emotional content. Very cool. So, so the interesting thing about about the Yondu death actually is that James Gunn did not want to kill off Yondu in this film because he is a big fan of Michael Rooker and has been in every Rooker has been in every movie that Gunn has actually made so far. And killing him off meant that he was not going to be able to be in the third volume of Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm -hmm. And so initial early scripts actually had Yondu sacrificing himself, but then getting saved somehow miraculously at the last minute. Uh, But, you know, in watching how this was playing out and and going through and, and looking at this, it just didn't feel right to him. It felt very false, untrue, and that the commitment to the story and what I ultimately I think really hits home that message about family is, is Yondu dying. And he's like, 
I, I, I have to do this. Yandu has to die in this film. And he's like, if nothing else, maybe I'll throw Rooker in some makeup in, in some alien makeup in the third movie. That way you don't even know he's there, but, uh, yep. very, very interesting right. stuff that it was that there, the ending we got that's such a great ending almost initially wasn't going to be the ending because of the the director the director's like mm-hmm. admiration for one of one of the actors that was in the film. Yeah. No, he definitely has his his group of people he likes to work with. I think though that Rooker got his money's worth out of it. In that yeah. this is a movie that now, you know, we we went to I think it was a comic convention a few years ago where he was one of the guests and of all his lines on mary poppins y'all is now 100 <laughs> percent the thing everybody wants line. to hear from yeah. him right that is that is his line and this performance is is just a signature performance of the mcu so yeah if you gotta go this is the way to go i guess you know so he uh but but he talked about it and it's obvious he has a that same sort of admiration uh, for for Gunn and for the other folks there, and it seemed like he had a really good time doing it. So it's very cool. Dan, talk to us about the 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 message of family that's in this because it is it is really I think the overarching message that that is is really hammered home very well in this film. Yep. Yeah, I think that when you look at the first Guardians movie, it was kind of about. A bunch of loners realizing that they're not alone and kind of developing some friends and getting this group of you know group of of folks to go out and and try to save the galaxy together right and now in the second movie these friends have sort of turned into this found family and you see all these relationships between them but you also start to see that you know it's about peter and ego and you know father son it's about peter and yondu father son it's about nebula and gamora and their sister relationship and stuff like this so it's phoned family and sort of blood relations and then sort of mixing that up you know in terms of peter has to eventually make that that sort of determination of you know well this is this is the guy who was my genetic father but he sucked and here's my actual dad, who you know is the guy that that, that raised me, um, and and just through it all, even Drax at a certain point uh, when he's talking about not leaving anybody yeah. behind, you know he's like, you don't leave your friends behind. And he says, yeah, but we're not friends, we're family. So, yeah, it's it's really some strong stuff. The 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 line that that really got me is Peter's talking to Gamora and he says, you know you should be happy for me. I found my family. And she's like, I thought we were your family. And, yeah. And really, and, and really shows that, you know, Hey, there is the, the family you pick can be as important, if not more important than the family you're born into. Yep. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a uh, really, really well done. And again, earned because like, like I say, I think, they developed this so well over the first film, kind of getting everybody together and then showing how they'd how they'd sort of gelled at the start of the second the second film. So awesome. So the 
The interesting thing about this, and I didn't realize this, I guess, until I was researching this, but this film, the, like, the timing for this film is actually only about three months after the first film and, and actually happens quite a bit before Infinity War and Endgame ends up happening. So like in kind of the Marvel timeline, you have the okay. first film that, that happened, uh, you know, and then about they've only been together about three months and that's why they're still kind of you know this really? kind of one-upsmanship that that rocket and 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 peter have about the ship and and how they were going to get say you know go through the asteroid belt and that and, and why they're kind of there there's growing pains there right because they were a bunch of loners that were trying to work together but still weren't really used to working with others. You know, they don't play nice mm -hmm. with, the, with with others very well. And so this was kind of the, 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 the strife that invariably ends up happening once you, you know, if you, you're all about kind of being by yourself and then you suddenly find yourself in a group and have to have to think about others in addition to yourself. Interesting. I would have thought it would have been more like a year. Just with the size of Baby Groot and all the other stuff, but you've you've got the timeline, so I believe you now. It's three months yes, it is. No, they 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 said two to three months in one of the one of the vignettes uh, that huh. is available on Disney Plus. So cool. Um, so let's talk about the visual effects because there is a lot of visual effects in this film, but they by and large to me look absolutely fantastic there you you think about there there's some very amazing special effects scenes the the Groot opening dance sequence is fantastic you, all the shots on ego's planet look really cool both kind of in the foreground as well as all kind of the background stuff we're going to talk about how big that is in just a minute you've got yondu's arrow you've got uh when yondu rocket and craglin end up jumping 700 times to get to ego's planet and their facial contortions <laughs> it was yeah. it was really something and the best part about it was they weren't being hidden by darkness like we're seeing in no. some of these more recent films some of the vibrancy of ego's planet were just amazing and and I mean that was not that that wasn't real. That was entirely entirely CG. Mm -hmm. Yep. I would have I would 100% agree. I loved even some of the things like when he he split the or popped the little bubble and it turned into all these multicolored things. Uh, smaller I bubbles. I mean you talk yeah. about vibrant it was color just like somebody'd been throwing paint on the on the screen. So I really enjoyed that. I think that the effects stood out because if it if it makes any sense because they didn't stand out they looked great yeah. but i never really noticed myself thinking that's a cool special effect i'm just like that's a pretty cool shot right 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 and i didn't i didn't necessarily it didn't take me out of the moment to think about the special effects which i think is the the best thing you can say about special yeah. effects yeah you just think wow that's awesome so there were nine visual effects studios that were credited in working on this film. Framestore, Weta Digital, 
Trickster, Method Studios, Animal Logic, Scanline VFX, Lola VFX, Luma, and Cantina Creative. And, and some of the some of these are we're not talking about small things either. Framestore actually completely rebuilt Rocket from the ground up for volume two, giving him this updated fur simulation, new facial shapes, and and, and that as well as a new eye rig which actually was kind of pulled from the character Garnack from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Uh, Bradley Cooper, actually, he he recorded voice lines for Rocket from the for the first film, right? In the second film, he actually wore a motion capture headset so that they could do mouth uh, animation that more accurately represented the words that he was saying. That that's that's the sort of thing that we're talking about. As far as like Ego's Planet, they said that that contained over one trillion polygons, which at the time of the film's release was considered the biggest visual effects visual effect ever made. Like when they're is, coming in on that white sort of chariot yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, and like looking yep. at like uh, that whole thing. Um, yep, that looked it is. It is absolutely crazy. The so the opening sequence, James Gunn actually choreographed and served as the motion capture model for Groot's dance during the sequence. And it took the visual effects team nearly two years to create the CG rendering for the final film. And it's oh, despite the fact that it looks like a single shot, it was ultimately eleven different visual effects shots. And Frame store actually include and it's all CGI except for three moments. Quill falling to the ground near Baby Groot, Gamora talking to Baby Groot, and Drax rolling behind Baby Groot was actual photography that they in then inserted into the CGI that they were building for that opening sequence. It is for the most part, something. all of the characters are actually. All CGI? the background stuff is all CGI, yes. Interesting. Wow, that is, that's crazy. It is. So there is, and, and that's not a short sequence. That is the opening credits yeah. and like everything that's going on there. So that's like five, six minutes worth of, you know, dancing and and, yep. and, and everything that's going on there too. Uh, Weta Digital was the one that handled the ego during the fight with Quill and it utilized a digital double for Kurt Russell for many of their shots. And they talked about having to create a special digital double for David Hasselhoff when he makes that small conversion briefly to David Hasselhoff before uh, switching back to himself. Uh, so much going on there. And and it just... it. A lot of the times visual visual effects get a lot of criticism, especially more recently. But I, I just I had to call out all the all these different uh, companies that did all this great work in this film. Because, yeah, I, I just kept looking for for something to be to not look so great. And everything to me just looked spectacular. I would agree. I will. I will say that I think my favorite shot, just because I wasn't expecting it, because once they turned Ego into like a guy who was wandering around on his planet. When later on, there's a shot where he's doing something and they cut away to an external shot of the, planet, the planet. And you yeah. and you actually see the face of Ego in the planet. 
which is kind of more like the way we're used to him in the comics. I thought that was a fantastic little take, you know, that even though they've they've gone with a more anthropomorphized version so they can kind of tell the story easier, that there still is that face of ego in a planet kind of thing like we have in the comics. Uh, made me very happy. So Yes. I I did have that as a as a nod for the for the comics here later on. But yes, I, I mm-hmm. wholeheartedly agree. So the other the other thing I think we have to mention it it wouldn't be a Guardians of the Galaxy movie without talking about the music. And once again, the music in this film is absolutely top notch from from the opening sequence uh, all the way through the end. I, I think it was just it, it was it was it was great. It was they the the music. It feels like it's much a part of the story as anything else. And, it, and in fact, James Gunn. There's a vignette talking about the soundtrack of volume two. And he talks about the fact that in the script, he says, this is the song I want playing here. And then he goes out and tries to get it. And he, and he has yet to be turned down when there's been a song that he's specifically said, this is the song I want. He's going to get it. And, and it, Does someone and it just hate, works. hate having an entire new generation of people fall in love with their song or something like that. Yeah. But, uh, who would turn him down? So, yeah, I, I think, though, a lot of these, you know, like at the end, even when Cat Stevens' father and son comes on or a lot of the others, it's obvious that he's just messing with your emotions. He's playing right. with you. Right. But he does such a good job of it. You know, it's it comes off so well where hardly anybody I've ever seen as a director, maybe Edgar Wright, but very few are able to do this job of just mixing just the right music in at just the right time to completely transform or enhance a scene so yeah absolutely loved those uh during that same vignette uh james gunn talked about the fact that they actually write and produce the the musical scores before principal photography in a lot of cases because they want to have Gunn wants to have, as well as some of the cast, to be able to hear the music when they're shooting memorable shots. So, like, that final scene uh, of Yondu and Peter uh, up in space when he when he sacrifices himself, there's a, a really, like, beautiful sco- musical score that's occurring there. And when they were filming it, Gunn, as well as, as, as Rooker and, and Pratt, were able to had a little earpiece and could hear the music as well so that they could, you know, kind of really match the dialogue pacing in that to, to the musical score. So it, it, yep. it shows just how important the music is to this and, and how much effort that, that gun puts into making sure the music is just so for the film. Yep. So, Essentially, the the actors hit the right beats at the right yeah. time according to what's going on in the music. That yes. makes perfect sense to me, and it's yeah. it's the sort of thing that you'd think maybe more directors would understand. But there's a lot of folks who just don't seem to get how important music is to the the overall power of a film. That's that's awesome. So, I so two th- two other things I've found about the music that i thought was really interesting so james gunn had selected all the music for this film by june of 2015 um 
saying that volume two was actually a more diverse uh, set of music than the first one. He, he talked about it be, having some really, really incredibly famous songs and then some songs some people had never heard of. And he, and he, he talked about really liking taking like the B sides of, of, of songs, th songs that most people didn't, didn't know or, or hadn't heard in years and be mm -hmm. able to kind of bring them to this new audience. And, yep. and the other, th the other thing that's interesting is Gunn said the hardest song from this film to get the rights for was for ELO's Mr. Blue Sky, which is the opening dance sequence song. You know, I, I was wondering how they would top Redbone and come and get your love at the beginning of the first guardians. And then yep. they have ELO's Mr. Blue Sky, which with, with baby Groot dancing to it is absolutely great. And the reason is the band had previously cleared that their song Livin' Thing could be used for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, but the scene that it was in ended up on the cutting room floor. Whether it was because of hurt feelings or just the feeling they didn't want to waste their time again, the band re was reportedly hesitant about greenlighting the use of their song in the second film. Once Gunn explained the importance of the sequence, Mr. Blue Sky was featured in. He was fairly had a fairly easy time convincing them that it was impossible to drop that scene from the final <laughs> cut, so the song would in fact appear. And uh, I, I, I That's just, awesome. I absolutely love that, love that, uh, that opening sequence. It is, it just be, between the all the CG that's done there, and then, and then that song. I think it's just perfect. Yep. No, it absolutely is. That's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, I would I would assume that you uh if they ask for a song and then don't use it, that would be one thing that would get a little frustrating for a band probably. Music music is awesome. There's one other thing that kind of a, a filmmaking element. I did want to you kind of mentioned it a little bit, but the lighting I think is something that one the one place I really noticed it on, and I don't know if you did, but do you remember Gamora being that green before? Like in the later I films, know. I think that they've they've set the sort of you know the that sort of gray haze over everything uh -huh. to where she's a much darker green. She is like Kermit the Frog she's, green in this movie. Yeah, she's very bright green in this movie. And I think it's probably the same makeup. But they've just done so much of that increased sort of, you know, setting down the hue of everything that you just don't you just don't see her the same color in the later movies. Or at least it doesn't seem to me because there was a few times I'm just like, wow, she is really, really green, you know? Right. No, I, I definitely agree. Yep. But overall, the this one was lit more like I would like to see this, the Marvel movies lit. There were a few times they did have some of the saturations up a little bit, but overall, everything was easy to see. It was really well filmed. Pretty, pretty spectacular. So let's let's talk about the post-credit scenes because there is like five mid yeah, in post-credit scenes in in this film. Where where do you want to start with with these? So I guess the first one is um is the one where 
uh, where Drax gets shot with the arrow. Is that a post-credit scene, or is that just I, the I, end of the movie? I don't actually know. I, I think that's a I think that's a post-credit scene. The the Kraglin is trying to learn to use Yandu's arrow because he's given given the arrow. Um, okay. After, afterwards, and he ends up yeah, uh, like impaling Drax with it. <laughs> inadvertently yes. presumably and then proceeds to run off so yeah he did he did not seem like he was trying it and then the second scene we have is the sort of original guardians of the galaxy led by sylvester stallone uh who's yes. uh, that's kind of an interesting one because it implies as well that there is a an idea for these characters to come back the people that he hired were too high profile to have signed on just to do a five minute cameo it seems to me you know right right well yeah they were in the in the ravager funeral scene and then we get this post-credit scene uh with them in there as well and yeah yep. we've got you've got sylvester stallone you've got um bing rames you've got michelle yeo uh Michael mm-hmm. Rosenbaum, as well. There, there is several, yep. several pretty high, big, big name. Even, even at that time. Uh, yep, and they, very, and these were, big. and these were named characters. This is, you know, Vance Astro, and Martinex and Charlie Twenty Seven. These are a lot of the characters who actually were the original Guardians of the Galaxy in the comics. The ones that we didn't get. Uh, anything in the mcu previously but which yeah it just seems highly unlikely that there wasn't a plan for them to have a decent spot in the third movie that now probably got blown up by all of the uh, whether it's pandemic or gun being sort of moved off of the movie for an extra three years or whatever that's that's uh sort of changed the plans but those are, yeah, all, all named characters and all characters that have an important history with the Guardian's name, the Guardian's IP in the comics. And then we get so our, what... first, our first reference to Adam Warlock as well from the, from yep. the Sovereigns and uh, the Sovereign leader, Aisha, talking about and showing this giant, uh, like... Um, stasis cocoon yeah yep yeah and that's going to be something that looks very jack kirby-ish it looks very much like the cocoon he had actually back in the day in the comics uh this also is kind of interesting now because i don't think most of us really knew how he was going to work into the story when this came out but having seen this movie again now and seeing some of the the previews for three and the like, I wonder if what we're going to be looking at isn't something like the Guardians end up going back to the High Evolutionaries' homeworld to sort of try and figure out Rocket's origin or because there's something there Rocket's trying to get back to. And Warlock is sent after them sort of for vengeance on this. And so we end up having High Evolutionary and Warlock and they're both trying to kill the guardians because that would seem 
everyone's always trying to kill the Guardians, so why not? But I at first was thinking that somehow a warlock would have been there, but now remembering this, I'm like, nope. He'll he'll be coming from the Sovereign. So they probably all are just kind of meeting up and having a big fight. So. And and uh, Groot, teenage Groot, we got to see we got to see him, and he uh, is so it seems like just about any other teenager I've ever met. Yes, my my wife's favorite scene in the entire movie. So our son was I think thirteen when this came out. He was twelve or thirteen, so he was right in the sitting truculently in his room playing on his video game console era. So this was something we we uh, got got a direct feel out of. Like that is our son sitting there. So um, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It also shows Groot is growing up. Uh, it looks almost like he grows relatively quickly. He must have just sort of shot up quite literally because he was pretty <laughs> small. And it doesn't seem like there's been five years or whatever between these these previews. So, in any case, uh, that kind of leads us to him being even bigger in the next movie. So, because it looks like he's going to be a college kid or something like that in the uh, in in Volume Three. And the final post credit scene was uh, Stan Lee getting left by the Watchers in space. There. Yep. And that was awesome because it's. Him just sort of sitting there as they're wandering, go away, going, I've got so many more stories to tell, you know? Yeah. And that was Stan Lee. He, whether he was telling stories about himself or telling stories about his characters, he was always making something up. And that's why we loved him. All right. And with that, we have reached the end of the movie. Dwayne, as usual... I would assume you have some tidbits and the like for us, some from the comic stuff, that sort of thing. I, I do, I do. So, first thing is principal photography for this film started February 17th, 2016, and it had the working title or code name of Level Up. That was, that was the, uh, the name that it went under. I don't know if you noticed, but the MCU characters showed up instead of comic book images in the Marvel Studios logo at the beginning of this film, which I think is the first time they made that switch because Civil War was still co- was still the comics. Yep, but this makes this sense. was MC- This was MCU characters. So Baby Groot is actually an offspring of Groot. It is not the same character, and James Gunn confirmed this on Twitter saying, quote, the first Groot is dead, Baby Groot is his son. So this is what this is a this is a new Groot. Okay, that makes me sad. I didn't. I I thought somehow that Groot just sort of survived as this intelligence. As long as there was a twig, he would come back like like Wolverine, who used to be able to regenerate himself and entirely from a fingernail or something like this. Interesting. Apparently not. Uh, no, one final thing with baby one. Final thing with Baby Groot was prop master Russell Russell Bobbitt created a one one to one scale model ten inch Baby Groot that they used for filming, mainly to be used for lighting reference. But the model was sometimes puppeteered around against cast members during filming, and they actually show it like on this 
like like a mop handle sort of thing and it was just sort of kind of being walked around just to show where baby Groot would be uh during during oh during different shots and things which i thought was actually quite something being on a movie set on these on these big special effects movies must just be a very weird experience cuz yeah nothing's actually there half the people you're talking to aren't there the scene isn't there it's crazy all right regarding references to the comics so the opening battle sequence the 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 oh, the, the dance sequence the background thing going on actually resembles the first issue of the comic book in 2008, which featured the newly formed Guardians battling a giant monster from another dimension. In that story, the Guardians were defending the a cult named the Church Universal Church of Truth, which had ties to Adam Warlock. In this film, the Guardians were working for the Sovereigns, which later revealed to have possession or was creating uh, Adam Warlock in the cocoon. Both the sovereigns and the church became adversaries of the guardians in in the comics. Mm-hmm. You remember the to... uh, you remember the Church of Universal Truth from the Starlin books last week too. Yes, the whole yes. Connection out to the Magus and all of that, and right, yeah. right, right. So we talked about Taserface, and Taserface is in the Guardians of the Galaxy comics. Actually, he is a warrior from a cybernetic enhanced race known as the Stark. The Stark are an alien race that found Iron Man technology that had accidentally crashed on their planet, and as a result, they worshipped Tony Stark as their god. I was I was not aware of this. And in the comics, having a name like Taserface isn't something that's going to get you laughed at because lots of people have really dumb names. But yes. obviously, when you move that into live action, it uh, it becomes just a little more obvious how ridiculous some of these names are. So, Such so James Gunn, so so James Gunn revealed that uh, he got a lot of criticism about Yondu's fin in the first film. Because it didn't look like the fin that Yondu had in the comics. So the prototype fin that he gets uh, when he's busting out and ends up, uh, you know, killing a bunch of the Ravengers that are still left on his ship. The much bigger fin is a nod to Yondu's fin from, from, the, from the comics. More in line with what the fin that he had in. I think, in fact, I, I at one point heard, and this might not be true, that that he had the more subtle fin partly because Rooker and a lot of other people just thought it would be ridiculous to have the big, you know, four or five inch fin on top of somebody's head. And so they, they just made it look a little bit more, you know, subtle so that uh, so that they could make it less less goofy. But... Comics fans don't want less goofy. We uh, we're all about we're all about that. Uh, and finally, so during the credits, we also see Cosmo the dog, Howard the duck again, and the Grandmaster all shown. Uh, yep. During, during the during the credits, so absolutely, that is awesome. All right, Dwayne. So. We're going to go ahead and pick one of the three. And you said you liked the Strange Tales books best from last week. So I'm going to go with the Strange Tales books. 
and Jim Starlin's Warlock Strange Tales books, The Introduction of Gamora, um, against Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Which one of these did you uh, did you think you preferred there, sir? It feels like this isn't actually a fair comparison because the Strange Tales books really, to me, feel more like an Adam Warlock story than they do a Guardians of the Galaxy story, even yeah. though we do see Gamora in here. So I am going to pick the Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 movie. It's, it's such a great follow-up film. I, I, you know, I, like I said, I don't think it's quite as good as the first one, but I think the first one to me has, has this sort of unexpected charm to it that, that I totally was not expecting going into the film. I knew nothing about these characters, but I think the thing that this film has going for it is that big message, that family message and seeing, uh, the Yondu for, and Peter relationship grow to the point where Yondu sacrifices himself, you know, as they're trying to get away from Peter's biological father, ego, and all that craziness of that, of that final fight. Um, just, just seeing the interactions of these characters, the fact that, you know, knowing, I wish they would have told us a little bit better that this had only been such a short time between the end of the first film and this film. Because, you know, it's three years in real life, but it's only like mm -hmm. three months. And so it makes a lot more sense that there's these growing pains, that these that these these got these people don't really like, you know, love each other as family quite yet, but you can see them getting there. And then by the end of the film, they they do. They're there. That's you know, that's why they're, you know, willing to take on ego and, and take down the, the planet so that it doesn't, you know, take out uh, basically the entire universe. Yeah. No, I uh, I love, like, you know, Strange Tales 178 is, I love that comic. I love that whole run. All of the, the Starlin Warlock stuff from the, the mid-70s. But I think, yeah, I have to go with this as well, simply because it tells such a coherent story and the way that a lot of sci-fi and fantasy gets itself in trouble is it forgets that no matter how many special effects shots you have, it's the actual story and the characters and the motivations that sort of make the story work or not work. You know, people nice. got to have something to fight for. They have to have some sort of development in their personalities and their relationships to make it worth people bothering to show up and this just does a spectacular job of giving us comedy giving us all sorts of crazy action and super special effects but in the end it's grounded in all of these stories about people kind of discovering their relationships and why they care about each other and how much they care about each other and so it just works as a story at a level that I don't know that a lot of Marvel films really do any better outside of, you know, some of the end game type of stuff. There's not a lot of them that really, that really hit this well. Resonate at that level. I like this one more now. I think after really thinking about it and watching it again, than I maybe did before. I don't remember when I watched it years ago that, and that might also be 
that we care more about the characters now because they've been around for a while. So seeing them go through this stuff is is more interesting. Very, very curious to see where Volume 3 takes us because this definitely set up some things and, you know, we've had some interactions with these characters since then. Infinity War, Endgame, we had the the, the Christmas special, uh, Volume 2.5, as it were, with Kevin Bacon in here, but that was a bit more of a just sort of fun sort of thing. But I think, I think I'm going to bet that there's going to be another really, really touching, really important message that's going to be shared in that, in that third volume. And I think that there's going to be something really, really sort of heartbreaking in this by the time it's all said and done. And just, just based on some of the trailers, I, I don't see how it's not going to end that way. I am of the opinion that we are all going to be angry and we're all going to be sobbing by the time we leave. Probably about, you know, animated trees and talking raccoons and stuff like this, like we have been the last few times, you know. Uh, again, that they've made these characters so real that it's going to be weird seeing them, seeing them suffer. But I think that, yeah, I'd, I'd be very surprised if we don't have some, some really tragic things happen in the, in the third volume. So, but, but we'll see. That's the other problem with having Gunn, like, leaving to go head DC Studios. Is he's got nothing to lose. He can burn all the IP he wants in Volume 3. It just doesn't matter. So. Right. Right. So, so, Dan, next week is going to be interesting because we ended up, the way this the scheduling sort of worked for this, we have an extra week in here between Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is actually coming out on May 5th. So what are we going to be doing next week? I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. We are going to take a, a diversion entirely away from anything having to do with superheroes and capes and the like. And when I was out there for spring training a while ago, I left the Road to Perdition graphic novel at Dwayne's Place. And we are actually going to take our week to read that graphic novel, watch Road to Perdition, the movie, and come back and just talk about it as a one-shot. And depending on what you guys think of these, this would be something that I would love to do every once in a while, to just sort of take a complete distraction away from what, we've, uh, what we're doing, doing with the MCU and, and try something completely off the grid. So... Apparently, Road to Perdition is on Netflix now, but it is leaving Netflix at the end of April. Correct. So we have a very small window in which we can do this. So it ended up <laughs> working out quite brilliantly that we inadvertently got an extra week in here. So we're going to, I am going to read through the the book. You've already done that more than once, oh, yeah. it sounds like. Absolutely. And we're, I've not, I've never watched the movie so we're going to watch the movie and then we're going to have a special combined episode where we talk about the comic book uh, run, the graphic novel, and talk about the movie all in all in one shot. So very much looking forward to that. I hope you'll join us next week when we do that. Uh, should be quite a bit of fun. Yeah, I really think it is. I, I think we're going to have a good time with it. It's, you know, it's a Tom Hanks movie that... 
was uh, was really well received when it came out, and it's a great comic book by Max Allen, uh, Max Allen Collins. So I am 100% looking forward to seeing what you think of how the adaptation goes and what you think of the comic and everything else. So... All right, and with that, that is going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, maybe Road to Perdition, which we're going to be talking about next week, or Guardians 3, which is just a couple weeks away. So you can send us those comments via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com or you can reach out to us via Twitter. We are at comicsovertime. Dan, we're deviating from the schedule next week and doing a one-shot on Road to Perdition. And I have to tell you, I'm very much looking forward to diving into the graphic novel and the movie and getting to talk with you about it next week. It'll be a lot of fun. See everybody next week. Have a great one. Take care, everybody.